are in Galatians 3, verses uh, 15 and following. And real quickly recap, we uh, saw over the past couple of weeks, uh, two weeks ago, we looked at um, verses 1 through 5, and we summed that up with the thought of autopilot, that we are not saved by the Spirit and then become perfected in the flesh, that we have a tendency to um, just do the things we've always done, just to go through life really not conscientious, uh, of the of the spirit led by the spirit praying to the spirit just kind of doing going through the motions if you will just kind of doing things that we've always done not living according to the spirit see, seeking to be make sure we're full of the spirit and last week we saw we looked at the word that was identity what where do we find our identity and and we 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 saw how Paul was pushing the Galatians, but also us to find our identity in the gospel. That, that Christ, he became the curse for us. He is our only righteousness, as Lee just prayed. Our identity is not found in, in what we do. It's, it's in who we are. We are Christians. We are sons and daughters of the one true God. And we ask the question, again, where is your identity found? Is your identity in what you do, or is it in who you are in Christ? Is your identity found in the gospel, or is it found in a role that you play? And that flows into what we see today in verses 15 and following. See, the, the, what, we, what we have seen and what we will see today is that the law is incapable of saving, do, doing enough good, finding our identity and who we are, what we do, going to those things, it will never save. They will never bring salvation. And that was part of the curse that we saw last week is that going to the law to try to earn our identity or earn our righteousness is a curse because you can't. Because God demands that you be perfect. There's not a single person in here that would be so bold to, admit, to, to say, you know what, I'm perfect. So therefore, the very thing that you're looking to, to find your righteousness, only brings curse because you fail. When you go to the law and you start walking, it would not take long to walk through simply the Ten Commandments to realize that I have fallen short. Love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your mind, and soul, your strength. I think if you're, if you're honest with yourself, you fall short right there. We haven't even gotten to number two. So, so the law, if we're looking to it for our identity, if we're looking to it for our salvation, it becomes a curse, not a blessing. And it was never intended. And, and the question that flows, that naturally flows from that, is the question that Paul addresses for us today. And this is probably one of the most important questions that a Christian, that a believer will, will be faced with that they must ask themselves. And the question is this, what is a Christian's relationship to the law? If it doesn't save, if it doesn't bring eternal life, what then is a believer's relationship to the law? Does the law matter? Why was the law even given if it didn't save? And that's what we're going to see today in Galatians 3, verses 15 through 25. And the, 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 the question becomes this, do we have to obey the law? Do we just set the law aside? I hear people say that, he, that Christ condemned the law. Christ did not condemn the law. 
He didn't, he didn't erase the law. He fulfilled the law. That right there should tell us something about the law. He fulfilled it. If we're saved by Christ's work, then, then the question becomes this. Then, then, then does what we do and how we live matter? What then is our relationship to the law? Even that question, how should we live and does how we live matter, is a question that goes back to the law. Why pursue holiness if we can't be holy on our own? Why? And that's what Paul is dealing with here. It's very practical. This is real life stuff. Every other, every other question that we deal with goes back to what is a believer's relationship to the law. How do we treat others? That goes back to the law. How do we treat our spouse? Goes back to the law. Why do we pay our taxes? Goes back to the law. Our role as an employer, as an employee, goes back to the law. How do we raise our kids? Goes back. What is our relationship to the law? And again, the natural question is, okay, if the law doesn't save, Paul, you've made that point very, very clear. The law doesn't save, it doesn't justify, it doesn't glorify, then what is its role? That, that's the question I want to answer today. What is the role of the law in a believer's life? I want us to walk out here today and fully understand and comprehend the role that the Word of God, that the law, if you will, specifically, again, in some ways pointing back to the Old Testament, but even in Galatians we'll see a law of Christ. Even in Galatians we'll see in chapter 5, for you are called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is still a relationship with us as believers. And, and I thought about this just a way to, to illustrate it. I wasn't able to come up with one word, and I thought long and hard about that, and, and I just was not able to. You, you may, as you walk away from here, if you do, let me know, and I'll put it in here. So if I ever preach this again, not that anybody would want me to, but if I ever do it again, I'll throw it in there. But uh, have you ever looked, listen, have you ever looked, found yourself looking to something or looking to someone to provide or to do something that they or that thing or that person was never really intended to do? You ever looked to someone or something and tried to make that someone or something do something that it really was not intended to do? Maybe, maybe you were expecting someone to do something that they really were never created or intended to provide. Again, maybe it was a tool. Maybe it was a car. I, 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 um, you know, maybe you find your identity in, in the car you drive. Maybe, maybe you look for your car to build up your self-esteem, or maybe, maybe your house or, or things. But, but, but beyond that, even more, those are things. But, but you, anyone, anyone, anyone in here ever, anyone ever, and this maybe is prevalent with, maybe it's with moms, I don't, I don't obviously I'm not a mom, um, but I know with sons, dads, you ever found yourself getting too much esteem or worth out of your children's sports endeavors than they were really intended to do? You ever, you ever find yourself finding your identity in their achievements or your lack of identity in their lack of achievements? 
I, I will be very honest with you. I, I am, no one, no one in here is not aware of this. I am very competitive. We had a staff kickball game Tuesday, and I no longer have a relationship with about four people at Idlewild because they're terrible kickball players. <laughs> and ironically, no offense, all three of them come out of the finance department and music department. I'm just saying, I'm just saying. Like when the ball is in center field and you run to third base and we're down by one, that means you go home. This is kickball. Like he just stopped there standing there. I'm yelling, go, go. I had to, I, I'm, I, again, it's finding your worth. I hate to lose. But listen to me, part of that is good, but part of that is just pride. Sin. I coach my son's baseball team. I can easily find myself being elated or depressed based on his performance at the plate. Listen to me, that's not Bradley's job. God didn't give Bradley to me and to Karen for me to find my worth in his sports endeavors. And, and this was, again, God teaches us through kids Two weeks ago, Bradley's at the plate and just takes a couple hacks at it that it was just like, what in the world was that? So after the inning, I said, Bradley, I mean, that wasn't even anywhere close. To, I mean, fundamentals, and he looked at me, and I, we're, I mean, I wasn't mean to him. I was just talking to him. He said, Brad, Dad, I don't care the way that you care. <laughs> That's what he said to me. I was like, all right, let, let's check, please. I mean, but, but, do, but I may not be alone in that. Anybody, what about your grades or your kids? Anybody, anybody find, anybody put too much pressure on their kids to get good grades and it's more for you than them? Maybe it's the way they dress. Maybe, maybe our kids were, meant to, were not meant to provide that. What about your spouse? Sometimes we, sometimes we make our spouse and we expect them to be God when they were never intended to be God. God was intended to be God. Our spouse was intended to be a blessing that helps lead us to God and walk with God, but not to replace God. And any time that we start looking at things to do things for us that they were never intended to do, that's a problem. And we get way off track, whether it's a spouse. Think about it, if... if Bradley, and, and I was grateful, it just like, okay, he doesn't care the way I do. Obviously, those swings, you don't care the way I care. I wanted to tell him, but I was like, you know what? But I'm, 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 I'm guilty of that myself. It, when, when, when they come home and, and, and Bradley gets, by the grace of God, because he takes after his mother, he gets straight A's very easily. Sarah Grace works really, really, she, it, it doesn't come as natural to her. And if I'm not, if I'm not, if you're not careful as a parent, you find your identity and hey, look at all those badges on this little blue lanyard that Bradley has. I didn't have, I mean, but, but suppose he gets a B. All A's and one B is still good, but not if I'm finding my worth in him making all A's. See, now it's become, that's how subtle sin is. And deceptive our hearts are. All of a sudden, I'm expecting him to do something for me that only God was intended to do. Again, you see how it goes back to identity? 
You see how it goes back to if our identity, if our worth, if our salvation is in anywhere but the gospel, we're setting ourselves up for failure. We're looking for sinners to be what they were never intended to be. And it's the same with the law. God gave the law for a specific purpose and the, and the Israel used the law in a way, looked for something in the law that the law was never intended to provide, namely salvation. He's never intended to do that. And listen to me, when, when I do that to Bradley or when you do that to your kids or your spouse, that's not their fault, that's your fault. That doesn't make them bad. Bradley is not less of a son because he doesn't care the way I care. He's different. The reality is I'm grateful because a lot of the things that God teaches me, and maybe, maybe I'm different in this, God teaches me a lot about myself through my kids. And, and here's the sad thing. A lot of the things that I don't like about myself are the things that he uses my kids to teach me about myself. I mean, I literally walked into that kick game, kickball game, and I gave myself a pep talk. Stay calm. I'm looking around. These, ain't, these guys ain't going to play good. You got stuck with a team that ain't going to, this ain't going to turn out well. I mean, I'm literally, if you can imagine, like, we're about to take the field, and I'm thinking, okay, Lord, this is all you. Just please, please. I mean, but that, see, that's my problem. Who cares about kickball? That game was meant to be fun. The thing I hate about myself is I can take something that was meant to be fun and turn it into something that's just not fun. But it's almost more fun to win. I'm just telling you. But but you see what I'm saying? You see what you see how Israel turned the law into something that it wasn't meant to be, and it became a curse. It became a stumbling block. And that's what Paul is getting at today. So I want to show us what is, the, what is the role of the law in a believer's life. And Paul does this in this passage, but he does first by saying what it's not. What, 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 what the law doesn't do. And the first thing he says in verses 15 through 18 is this. The law does not replace living by faith in God and His promises. See, you had the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12 and 15. And, and Abraham lived by faith. We've seen that. 430 years later, the law comes about, and Israel, Israel saw that as, well, now is this something new? Now, now do I get to God by doing, or do I still get to God by believing? See, they, they turned the law into something that it wasn't meant to be. They, they said, hey, well, you know what? God gave the law. He terminated justification by faith alone. And what Paul does is he reminds us through a, through a human analogy, that he's saying, look, when you establish a covenant between, between human beings, they're in effect until the terms are fulfilled. And God is saying, I made a covenant with you. I, that covenant I made with Abraham is still in force. It's in force until I complete it. And, and the point of what he's saying there, he's saying, Christ was the completion. Christ was the ultimate seed that I promised to provide. And it's still by faith. And, and Paul is saying, you, you guys have come to the Mosaic Law, which, by the way, was not 10. There were 613 Mosaic Laws. 613. He's saying, this thing came along 430 years 
after the Abrahamic covenant where God individually, Abraham is asleep and God alone sets the parameters around this covenant. He says, this thing, I'm going to do it. and, And the Mosaic law has not replaced faith. You do not get to God by works. You do not get to God by obeying the law. You get to God through faith. And the Mosaic, they, they saw the Mosaic Covenant as having changed things. That Again, that there was a new way to get to God. And look what, God's, look what Paul says in verse 17. Sums it up. What I am saying is this. The law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. Salvation is still based upon the promise of God. It's still based in God providing the seed. God would still interact with his people based on grace. And what Paul teaches here, and you see it on your handout, faith continued to be the means by which God's people lived even after the law was given. They still were to come to God by faith. They still were to come even to that law by faith. God still dishes out salvation and the invitation to be a part of his family, to be a part of Abraham's family based on faith and not a person's performance. Again, all throughout the Old Testament, Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous shall live by faith. Romans 1.16, the righteous shall live by faith. Hebrews 11.6, without faith, it is impossible to please God. It is still by faith. Even, even, in, even under the law, even within the Mosaic law, grace still reigned. Even the fact that God gave the law, we'll see, was an act of grace. And what he's saying is, look, grace... And works are mutually exclusive. They always have been. They always will be. And you'll see it on your handout. Paul is basically making it clear here that promise and performance are mutually exclusive when it comes to God's blessings. When it comes to entrance to his family, it's either based on God's promise through Christ or it's based on your performance. It's not, a, it's not both and. And I hope you're seeing how this connects. Again, he's already shown we're not saved. We are not saved by faith and then perfected in the flesh. That was verses 1 through 5. That was the autopilot. And at the same time, you don't, you don't enter into God's family by promise and then perfected by your performance. Salvation has always and always will be based upon the character of God. It will be based upon grace. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you are saved and not by works, what? Unless somebody would boast. Listen, God, you can read 1 Corinthians. You know what mine and yours tendency is? We want to boast. You know, I want my son to do good at at baseball because I want to boast. You know, I want my daughter to do well in things because I want to boast. And God has gone to great lengths with regards to salvation to, to... to do it in such a way that you and I have absolutely no opportunity to boast. Not even in our faith. Well, I figured God out. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. Go read Romans 11. He's unsearchable. His ways are unfathomable. You didn't figure him out. It's grace. Performance and promise are, are they're incompatible. They always will be. And our tendency is to think that we, I got this. I I can do this. 
We, we, we look to ourselves just like we saw in verses, verse 3 of chapter 3. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Most of us who are honest say, yeah. Let me give you my resume. Let me show you my spiritual resume. Let me tell you all the things I've done for God. By the, by the way, my question is always, whose power and strength did you do that in? Not yours. Who, whose oxygen did you use to do that? Not yours. And he's saying, look, to rest on our works as our acceptability before God is a false approach to the law. You're looking for the law to do something that it was never, ever intended to do. And that is just as hazardous with regards to salvation as it is with your spouse or anyone. You're setting, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And he's saying to take credit for your life, to take credit that you have this spiritual resume that God should be impressed with. He says that is to rob God of his glory and of his grace. And listen, not only that, what Paul is saying, and, and again on your handout, when we do this, when we go to the law, when we lean on our spiritual resume, we lose the joy that our relationship with God is secure because it is based on promise and not performance. And here's where it goes back to what we saw. If my, if my relationship with God is based on my performance with Him, that is going to be an insecure relationship. Why? Because we're not perfect. We fail. I mean, we, we, we saw the other day, if it's, it'd be like me saying, well, you know what, I, I know Karen married me on June 28th of 03, but man, I got to perform to make her, to keep her married. Do you realize getting up every day how, how unsettling that would be, how insecure that would be? If like I felt like I had to, to convince her to stay married to me every day. But you know what? I go back to that June 28th and I say, you know what? I married her. She married me. Therefore, I do these things. But it's not to keep her. It's because we're kept. Very different motivations. I gladly go back and do the things. And we'll see that in a moment. Why? Because she is my wife. Not to keep her my wife. And, and again, this is the issue with us if we're honest. Feeling insecure at times. Anybody in here ever felt, if we're honest, think about it. You ever felt insecure in your relationship with God? You ever wondered, just in a, even if it was for a moment, do you love me? Am I you know why? Because we gravitate to performance. We gravitate to works. We gravitate to earning our way to, to wanting to establish a relationship by resume because that's how everything else in this world seems to work, but not with God. It's grace. And the reason why we ask those questions, if you love me or this and that, is because, again, we're basing it on performance and not on promise. And, and, and we're basing it on trusting ourselves and, and not God's faithfulness. We're trusting ourselves and our faithfulness. We're, we're looking to merit God's favor through works, through our resume. And listen to me, oftentimes our lives lived by faith and works will look similar, but with very, very different motivations. And we saw that last week. But ultimately, listen, trusting in self brings curses. Why? Because you won't be perfect. But trusting in God brings blessings. Why? Because my salvation is secure over here if it's by grace. And, when, and Paul is pleading, do not take your eyes off the gospel. Fix your eyes on the cross. Do not look at yourself. Fix your eyes on the gospel. 
He's saying whatever reasons, listen, whatever reasons were that God gave law, whatever his reasons for giving the law were, the purpose of those laws were, the purpose of that was never for you to look to the law to gain your acceptance. The law did not replace faith. So if the law didn't replace, if that wasn't the purpose of the law, then what was the purpose of the law? And Paul begins addressing this in verses 19 and following. And you'll see it on your handout. In verses 19 through 22, what Paul says this, the purpose of the law, the first purpose, was to teach us about the depth of our sinfulness. To teach us about the depth of our sinfulness. Look, look at verse 19. Why the law then? An honest question. It was added because of transgressions having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. The, the, word, the word because there in the original language literally means for the sake of defining. And, and here, let me, let me read Romans 7 for you to understand that. In Romans 7, verses 7 and following, Paul explains this concept. Listen to what it says. Romans 7, 7 through 13. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would, have not have, I would not have come to no sin except through the law. See how it, see how it defines sin? For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me a coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was a result in life, proved a result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So then the law is holy, the commandment is holy, and the righteous are good. Therefore, did that which was good become a cause of death for me? May it never be, whether it was sin, in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good. We, you know, we went to a, this place called Nature's Classroom Friday, chaperone a field trip. We go into this area with animals, and it says on there, do not stick your finger in the cage. Well, I normally wouldn't have thought about sticking my finger in the cage. But all of a sudden, now that they told me not to, it's like, well, I'll show you. There's something inside of me. Like, I wouldn't, I don't normally walk up to places like, hey, let me just stick my finger in here. Unless you're at Safety Town. I did that two weeks ago, and irony is we went to Safety Town, and within four minutes of getting off the bus, Allison can attest to this, I was bleeding because the pig bit me. I'm like, I didn't even know a pig had teeth. I mean, I'm chaperoning a field trip to safety town and like literally three minutes, the kids aren't even off the bus yet and the teachers are putting Neosporin and Band-Aids on me. I'm like, this is a waste of time. But again, don't feed the pigs. Why can't I feed the pigs? I like pigs. My flesh rails up. But all it does is, it's not the, that's not that sign's fault. It exposes what's in my heart, sin. It exposes rebellion. And listen, what, what the law showed, you see it on your handout, is not that, not that we're simply sinners, but that we're prisoners of sin. That we need a rescuer. More effort, listen, if I'm in shackles and chained in prison, more effort won't do. I need somebody with a key. I need a rescuer. And what the law did is show you it's not simply a matter of just trying harder. You, you, that's the curse. 
The issue with my sin is not effort necessary. It's I'm a sinner. And I sin because I'm a sinner. I'm not a sinner because I sin. It's a root issue of sin. And, and what the law did, it, the law went even further than simply exposing it. The law actually stirred it up. That's, that's Romans 5.20. Listen, listen at the beginning of verse, the law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, guess what happened? Grace increased all the more. Praise God. What we're seeing is that the law, God in His grace is exposing to us the depth of our problem of sin and the weakness of the flesh. And, and its function was to show you, you're not just kind of a sinner. You're not a little sinner. You're a gross sinner. A depraved sinner at the core. This is Jeremiah seventeen nine. The heart is desperately wicked, who can understand it? You, we utterly fall short. We didn't just fall just barely. We utterly fall short. That's what the law shows. And God in His grace is revealing that. It, it's like a, a scan. You know, I, if, if I have, if cancer is all throughout my body, I want to know it. I don't want to go apart thinking I just have it in my little finger if it's all throughout my body. That's what the law showed. This is a bigger problem than what you realize. And this is grace. And, and again, the natural question is, okay, if the law exposes sin and if it stirs up sin, does that make the law bad? That's what Paul was addressing in Romans 7. Absolutely not. Why? Because the law came from God. Does a righteous, perfect, holy God, does anything other than righteousness and perfection come out of Him? No. If I fill a cup up here with pure water, Guess what? No matter, no matter what comes out of that glass, it's pure water. That's God. Nothing, nothing, that come, nothing that comes from Him. Again, this is James 1. Every good and perfect gift comes from God, the Father of lights, through whom there is no variation or shifting of shadows. The law was good. And somehow we can go to... Oh, that was bad of God. What well, was it bad of the scan to show you that you have cancer? No, that was his, that's what it's intended to do. There's blessing there. Guess what? Now you can address it. Well, guess what? The same God that exposed our sin, you know what he did? He said, I'm going to deal with it that I promised you way back when. I'm going to crucify my own son. And I'm going to have my own son become sin for you that you might become the righteousness of God. The very area you fall short, I'm going to put my son on a cross and he's going to become cursed for you. He's going to give you his righteousness. And, and you will see in a moment, the law's function, that was the very function of the law, to point us to another, to look for someone. I, I guarantee you, if you're in a prison and you're shackled, you know what you're going to be looking for? Every single person that walks in that prison, you're going to be hoping they're coming to your cell to set you free because you're going to know, I need somebody to let me out. I need a rescuer squirming and doing all the stuff you want you're not breaking free yourself and the law was given to point us to another to point us to somebody who would fulfill the law on our behalf why because perfection was necessary and that's grace even that is grace 
God is saying, don't look to yourselves. Look outside of yourselves. Look for another. And through the law, you see it on your handout, God graciously exposed our sinfulness, but also showed us our need for a Savior. Listen to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. We know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that the law, that law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers and mothers for murderers, and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. That's who the law, that's, that, again, God is exposing that. It, the law was intended for a specific person, and when viewed rightly, as, t- as Paul said in his letter there, it was good, it was a blessing. Listen, but if you turn the law into a means of getting to God on your own, of earning your righteousness, it's a curse. Why? Because you will not be perfect. All it will say over you, all the law will ever say for the rest of our lives is this, guilty. Guilty. And that's a curse. And yet Jesus Christ, when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, guess what the law declares over us? Redeemed. Righteous. Why? Because Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly. John Stott said the following. Listen to this. The principal point of the law is to make men not better but worse. That is to say, it shows them their sin that by the knowledge thereof they may be humbled, terrified, bruised, and broken, and by this means may be driven to seek grace. You know why we don't seek grace? is because we don't think our sin is that bad. We think, oh, I'll conquer that on my own. How's that working for you? It's not. Because we're not perfected by the flesh, we're perfected by the Spirit. And listen, John says, greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world. Not greater than you. It's not about more effort. It's about more humility, realizing that I'll never get to God on my own. I mean, look at verse 21. Is the law contrary to the promise of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would have been based on the law. Over here in chapter 2, Paul said, if I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then what? Christ died needlessly. If we could be good enough on our own, if we could measure up on our own, then why do you crucify your son? That's the point. You don't. But if there's only one way for us to get God, and it's through through the blood of Jesus, it's through perfection. See, that's why, again, the world hates a narrow gospel. The world hates John 14, 6. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. The world hates that. But if when you understand our sinfulness and you understand God's holiness and righteousness, it's the wonder and amazement is why there's any way, not that there's just one way. Why would God make any way for an unrighteous, nasty sinner like Chris Bastian to be able to stand in his presence, dwell with him, be adopted with him, and make any request of him? That's grace. That's grace. And the law cannot save because we've got to be righteous to be acceptable to God. And rather than provide, rather than provide salvation, you look at verse 22, the law shut up every single person under the title sinner. 
unrighteous. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Christ may be given to those who what? Believe. Again, by faith you are saved and not by works. Salvation is me realizing I'm an utter sinner. I cannot be perfect. I cannot get to God on my own. And it's me humbly crying out, I need a rescuer. And that rescuer is Jesus Christ. And it's forevermore looking to Christ. Even as a believer, it's looking to Christ. As we saw, it's being filled with the Spirit. It's not quenching the Spirit. It's not grieving the Spirit. Why? Because that Spirit is the only way that I will crucify my flesh, that I will have any victory over sin. Is by being filled with the Spirit. And some of us have fooled around with it way too long with the same specific sins and had no victory. Why? It's because you're going at it with the flesh, if at all. It's by the Spirit that you will crucify the flesh. And that was the function of the law, to expose how utterly sinful we are. But, but again... The law did not replace faith, and not only did it, but it did expose the depth of our sin. But secondly, and you see this in verses 23 through 26, the purpose of the law was to act as a tutor to lead us to Christ. It was a tutor. The law was a tutor. It was a guide. It was a guardian, as, as Lee said. I think in ESV it talks about a guardian. And you see on your handout, here's God's grace in the law. It was a yellow brick road that was to lead us straight to Christ, to lead us to a cure for our sin that the law exposed. Not only did God expose our sin, but He used the law to lead us directly to the cure. No guessing, no wondering, no fooling. Look, here's the cure. Here's the cure. I'm going to provide the cure. In, in Colossians 2, 16 and 17... Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. You, you look at Hebrews 10, same thing. It says the law was a shadow of things to come. Listen to me. I don't worship Karen's shadow. I worship Karen. I don't worship Karen. That's a bad statement. I don't love her shadow. Sorry, I meant to say love. I was thinking of worshiping God. We don't worship God through a shadow. We worship God because we have the substance. I don't fall in love with her shadow. Strike that. Edit that out, please. <laughs> Idolatry. See how sinful we are? See how I set her up to do things she ain't supposed to do? But you, you see what I'm saying? I, I don't love her shadow. I love her. And it's her that gives the shadow. The law was a shadow. The substance is Christ. He is leading us to Christ. God never intended for the law to impart eternal life or to forgive sins. Its role, its purpose was to show us our need for another, for somebody to be per perfect for us, for somebody to, to, to obey the law for us, for somebody to die for us, enter our rescuer, into our redeemer, enter Jesus Christ. The word tutor here, look at verse 24. Therefore the law was become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. Again, faith in Christ gives us the justification that we need in order to get into heaven. The word, the word tutor there, it means, it means pedago, it's pedagogos in the Greek. 
And then today, it regards to teaching, it regards to training a child, it, regard, it regards to a, a guardian. Parents in that day would entrust their young children to a, to a guardian or a tutor, a pedagogos. Sometimes it was a slave, a household slave, sometimes it wasn't. And that person would train the child until he got to be of age. What would he train? Well, he would train, he would reflect the parents. He, he would train that child to be a reflection of the parent. He would pass on to the children the ideals and the values and the character of the parents. He would supervise the child on behalf of the parents. And this pedagogos understood the desires, understood the character, understood the heart of his boss, and he made sure those children under his care captured that heart. And what Paul is showing, and you see it there on your handout, what Paul shows us through this is that the heart of the law was instructive. What does a tutor do? A tutor teaches. A tutor instructs. A tutor prepares someone for something else. Today, a tutor would prepare a student for an exam to pass something, to be able to grasp something. You know what the law did? The law was instructive in that it, it educated us. It taught us how holy God is. How awesome God is. It's the, the law, was a, again, it comes from God. It is a reflection of His character. The law brings us to an end of ourselves. We look at the law, which reflects God's character, and when we look at ourselves, and we realize, that's not me. I fall short. I need somebody to do it for me. And God's point in, is that in this is that we would have a proper appreciation for Christ and our redemption and the forgiveness and the sin debt that was purchased, that was paid on our account. Matthew 20, 28 says, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. What is a ransom? A, ram a ransom is a payment that is made to set someone free who is captive. And what the law does is the law teaches us this. If, if you left it up to ourselves, we would think, we would have the tendency to think, well, you know, maybe the debt was $100. You know, maybe my sin debt was only $100. Maybe it wasn't that big of a deal. You know what the law teaches us? That our sin debt was about $10 billion if you want to go that rate. Here's the point the law says. It's way more than you could ever pay. Whatever dollar amount you would put on your debt, it's way more than you would ever pay on your own. That's what Matthew 18 shows. It's way more than you would have ever... It, wouldn't, it, it would be 10 billion, not 100. And the law locked us up to look for someone else. It locked us up until Christ, who is the object of our faith, was revealed. And that is the lesson, if you will, of the law as a tutor. The lesson is this. You and I need a Savior. We can't save ourselves. We can't measure up on our own. We lack righteousness. But it does not mean, listen, but this does not mean that we can move beyond the law. That, that somehow the law was bad. It doesn't mean that you neglect the law, as a believer, that it has no bearing on your life simply because you can't be perfect and Christ was perfect for you. And that's Paul's point here too. 
The law is the character of God, and that never changes and is always good. It always reflects God. And and you see this in your, your house looks different than my house in certain ways. Why? Because it reflects your character. Your kids are taking on your character. And the rules that you put in place in your house and the limits and the guidelines, you know what you, you know why you do that? Because it's a reflection of your character. If you're not okay with them stealing, you know what you do to your kids? You say, you don't steal. If you're, not, if you're not okay with them being haphazard about their homework, you know what you say is, that's a poor work ethic and you're not going to do that in this house, so you're going to try hard. It may mean you get seized, but you're at least going to try hard. We, we tell our kids regularly, here's the deal. Did you do your best? If you can say to me that you did your best, do whatever you do, whether you eat, drink, do it to the glory of God. If you can look me in the eye and tell me that was the best you got, we're going to be okay. For, 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 one of our ki- for, for one of your kids, that may mean A's. For another kid, that may be C's and B's, but they're both trying. They're both doing their best. And a child who has been trained by something will reflect the characteristics and the heart of that training. Do you see the law? Do you see the heart of the law? The the heart of the law, we reflect the heart of the law of a loving God by obeying it. By loving God, by loving others. That's what we're going to see in chapter 5. Paul, in no way, shape, or form, if you walk out of here and think, well, the law is no longer valuable because we have Christ and Christ fulfilled it for us, you're missing the point. The law still uncovers sin. When I go to this word and read it, you know what I find? A sinner. A person who still falls short. Even though Christ is in me, even though Christ, that's part, I'm not perfect yet. I've been declared to be perfect. I've been declared righteous, but guess what? I'm not perfectly righteous. That's sanctification. Sanctification is me coming to this word on a daily basis, humbling, repenting, humbling, putting myself under this word, asking God to do in me what it says here, and me seeking to do it. Me try. I don't just so let go and let God. No, I make every effort like it says in 2 Peter. You know, if I got a problem with the computer, I don't just sit there thinking, okay, well, maybe it'll just go away one day. You know what I do? I, I get off the computer. If you got a spending problem, you know what you do? You don't just say, well, I hope one day I don't like these credit cards. You get rid of them. That's what's called making every effort. Well, one day God will just convict. He might, but he's probably going to do it through you making every effort. And you know how I do that? I do that by going back to the law, the law of Christ. And I submit myself to it. Because that's sanctification. I still don't perfectly reflect his character. And again, as believers, we still relate to the law, but not as a system of salvation. I go to it knowing, look, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't save me. But it teaches me about the God who did save me. And it teaches me about he, what He wants me to be. And in Christ, we come, listen, we come to and obey the law, not out of law, not out of duty, but out of love. Out of love. No fear of rejection. No fear of messing up because our salvation is found in Christ and and not our work. Our salvation is found in the promises of God and Christ's work. And that frees us to serve out of gratitude and not coercion. 
And I hope you see how freeing this is when you realize that it is Christ. Listen to me. Because of Christ, I am free to admit how sinful I am. I am free to repent. I am free to acknowledge it because I know that he's going to deal with it. And I know that where there is repentance and confession, he will give me the strength to overcome that. I'm free to admit that. You know why why we're so quiet? And we shouldn't be blaring our sin. I I expose some of my sin up here because I want to be vulnerable. I I want you to know that I I want you to feel normal. But I'm not up here exposing everything, and neither should you. But you ought to have somebody in your life, one or two, that you can confess your sins to from the standpoint of encouragement and not feel shame. You should feel shame of your sin, but you, you should be free to do that. Why? Because your forgiveness is in Christ, not in your perfection. And, and, and we as a church ought to be a church that's willing to deal with people who are in the process of, of working it out. Of Philippians 3.12, of working out their salvation with fear and trembling. But listen, it's God who is at work in us. Why? Because I'm not saved by being perfect. It's not flipping about sin. I'm not casual. But when I stumble, I stumble. I admit it and I move on. Why? Because my, my salvation is not in being perfect. And in Christ, again, we are free to admit how, admit how sinful we are. Again, not that we don't care. Listen to what Timothy Keller said, and it's on your hand out there. He said, without the gospel, we may obey the law, but we will learn to hate it. We will use it, but we will not truly love it. Only as we obey the law because we are saved, rather than to be saved, will we obey the law for God. That's, that's 219. Once we understand salvation by promise, we do not obey God any longer for our sake by using the law salvation system to get things from God. Rather, we now obey God for His sake, using the law's content to please, to please and delight our Father. It's a reflection of His character. And I would ask you, do you grasp this truth? There, there is a lot to think on. And, and if, if, if I was to, if you said, Chris, what do you want for this church? And, and I, I was recently writing some job descriptions. They're having me write some job, rewrite job descriptions. And, and it is a nightmare for someone like myself, just admittedly. But, you know, I thought about it. If I had any desire for myself and for you and your children, why we do what we do here, what's the reason for why we do what we do here, it'd be this, that you'd be happy in God. That, that's, that, that's the phrase that sticks with me, that I would, I would want to disciple people, I would want to be a part of discipling people who grow up to be happy in God. Who, who just like it says in Psalm 1, that about not hanging out with all these, not being a mocker, and all, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in it he meditates day and night so that he will be careful to do what is in it. Do you delight in God's law? I, I, I want us to be a church that, that loves this word, that it becomes honey, that Jeremiah said, your words became food and I ate them. That we learn to see that God is loving here. This is a reflection of his character. 
that, that, we would not, that we would not find our identity in all these other things that the world puts on us or pressures us, that we would find our identity in a gospel from a God who says, I will love you, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. That's where I want my identity found. That's where I want two little kids that God has given Karen and I to grow up, to not chase after clothes and sports and all these things that their dad chased after as a young person. But in the gospel. That, that, that we would be a church that, that loves the Lord with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That it, that we would, that it would be a joy to serve Him. That we would serve Him willingly, as it says in Chronicles. And that's why we do everything we do. That's why we, I, I preach through these books this way so that you will learn to study the Word rightly. So that you will learn to develop the taste for God's Word and to love it. But, but, but again, you're not going to get anything real scientific from me. Simply this, I want you and me to delight in God's Word because that is delighting in Him. It is a reflection of Him. I just want us to simply delight in the God who has saved us. To love God, to love others. October 2nd, we'll become Autonomous Church. You know what the theme is? Love God, love others. If we're honest, we got our hands full right there. We, we got enough to worry about right there. Love God, love others. I, I pray that we would be a church who seeks to reflect the character of our great God throughout our lives, through obedience, through relationships, not, not looking for performance to save us, not expecting your performance nor my performance, that we would be gracious when we fall, that we'd be long-suffering when we fall, not that we would okay sin, not that we would be casual with sin, but that we would be open to confessing and dealing with it. Why? Because I'm not made right by being perfect, and neither are you. And listen to me, if you're looking, if you're looking for anything other than Christ to save you, it's a curse. You, you, you're guilty. You know you're guilty. And I would beg you, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, turn to Christ. Look to Christ for your identity, for your salvation, for your everything. Christ. And if you are looking to Christ, I would ask you, is there an area of your life that you know doesn't measure up that you're not addressing? Is there something that you know in the Word that God has called you as a follower to do that you simply won't do? I, I would ask you to get, to get alone with God and to, to, to deal with that. Because again, it's not about being perfect. Christ was perfect for us. Every single one of us can think of areas that we don't measure up. And again, I'm, I'm not saying being legalistic. I'm saying, God, perfect me by the power of the Spirit that is in me. Perfect me by the power of the Spirit that is in me. And that every single one of us would look to the gospel alone. We'd be a church that's simply, who are you? If I, I, if, again, if I asked you, who are you? Your first answer would be, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. Not I'm a this, I'm a, no, no, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ and every single thing flows from that. Every other role you play, every other thing you do flows from that.